Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, February 22nd. Earlier this week, Provincial Health Minister Jason Copping announced the highest investment ever to improve primary health care. We get reaction to the announcement from Dr. Janet Reynolds from an organization called MAPS, modernizing Alberta's primary health care system. Spy balloons and unidentified objects have been shot down over Canada and the U.S. over the past couple of weeks, and it's been a hot topic of discussion. We speak with Richard Shamuka, Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, for details on what we know about these objects, and more importantly, what we don't. And finally, there's a good chance you've heard about human trafficking, but have you heard about labour trafficking? We hear about the practice and the dangers surrounding it from Julia Drydick, Executive Director of the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking. An announcement yesterday, the highest investment ever to improve primary health care. Yes, Alberta's Health Minister Jason Copping came out with a proposal that will strengthen our health care system. To talk about it and get some reaction, we're joined uh, by, uh, of course, Dr. Janet Reynolds, co-chair, modernizing Alberta's primary health care system, otherwise known as MAPS. Good morning to you, Dr. Reynolds. Good morning. So, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of the details that were in the rundown yesterday and what stood out to you? Um, Well, thank you for asking. This is really an important uh, announcement that happened yesterday for this investment in primary health care. And it is really just a first step and a bit of a bridge towards our longer term uh, report that will go to the minister later this spring. Uh, Really what stood out most was the fact that we need some immediate stabilization supports for Albertans and for healthcare workers that have been doing the best with what they have right now. Uh, and our, and it's still just not enough. And we can do that really by enhancing team-based care. So that'll be a way that we can increase capacity in our healthcare system and we'll leverage our, our existing infrastructure that we have in Alberta that is really the envy of a lot of Canada, and that's the primary care networks. Um, and we really want to be a bit more innovative in solutions that we can reach gaps in care um, in places of Alberta where there's there's some significant inequity in access to care like rural and remote uh, areas of Alberta. Doctor, could you just sort of explain for folks a little bit of the background uh, when you talk about Alberta's primary care system or, or the MAPS system, what exactly that is? Uh, yeah, I can. So the MAP system is, was announced by the minister, and it's really an initiative to modernize Alberta's primary care system. A pa- uh, three panels that the minister announced in the fall of, of last year to work on how we can improve on what we have in Alberta. When we compare ourselves to other primary care systems, we tend to uh, have worse outcomes, actually, despite some really good work that's happening. And it's a way for us to get stakeholders from all over primary care um, to to influence and have input and make our primary care system better. So primary care, a lot of people would think of as the first point of access. That's your family physician or where you might go if you have a chronic disease for care and those sorts of things. Dr. Reynolds, you mentioned comparing us to other provinces. Uh, does one province or territory, for that matter, stand out as, as getting it right, that we could really take a page out of their book and, and improve what we do here? Yeah, that is such a good question. And we we look to each other all over the country. I think everyone is struggling, and there are differences in our provinces. So plug-and-play might not work, but we do try to steal good ideas, replicate and scale wherever we can. We've heard a lot from this UCP government about 
updating, changing, making sure the healthcare system in our province is the best it can be. You said at the beginning, though, that this may not actually be enough. What more needs to be done, do you think? Well, I think this is the start to a shift in reorienting our health system towards primary care. And we're hoping that in the longer, uh, the final report, rather, that's due at the end of March, there will be a roadmap with some strong recommendations on how we can get there in the next five to ten years. When we talk about this being a, a huge investment and an investment that will make an impact, we've also talked to uh, people on the, on the other side who've said it's not about money, it's about reorganization, it's about doing things differently, not about throwing money at an issue. Can you talk to that and talk about those decisions versus the dollars? It, it is about both of those things, but without an investment, it's pretty difficult to make some things happen um, because we've had sort of a skewed primary care hasn't had the magnitude of investment when you look at the proportion of investment in healthcare compared to some of the other areas in healthcare. Uh, a quote was that uh, with a renewed focus on Albertans' primary care, the province's overall health system will be less dependent on emergency care and hospitalizations and provide the care Albertans need when and where they need it. Do you feel like we're not getting that now? I, I think we get that wherever we can, just not enough of it. Um, what ends up happening is people don't have access to primary care is they'll seek care, sometimes for primary care conditions, in what's considered the most expensive place, like an acute care or a hospital facility. And we really want to shift that and make sure Albertans have access to primary care in the community closer to home. Dr. Reynolds, when we talk about primary care, we talked about you know uh, looking at other provinces and regions and what they do correct and how we can adapt it and literally steal those ideas and make our system better. But do we have unique challenges here in Alberta when it comes to primary care compared to other regions? Uh, You know what, I can't speak for other regions. Um, I think there are lots of common problems, Um, but because we have unique cultures in our provinces, we have unique organizations in our government, that's what makes it different and where that, you know, cut and pasting might not work exactly the same way as you would expect it to work. A province with the geography of, um, you know, some of the smaller geographies, Nova Scotia is going to have some economies of smaller geography that we don't have in Alberta. So, Doctor, will we get the final sort of, you know, where this money will go, what will be helped in terms of, of, of this MAPS program? This will come down in Budget 2023. Is that when we find out all the details? So the minister has accepted the early investment opportunities and, and I think the the staff at Alberta Health will be looking at what can be implemented rather quickly once the budget is approved, yes. All right, thank you for your time. Thanks for your insight, Dr. Reynolds. We appreciate it. Okay, take care. Dr. Janet Reynolds, co-chair of Modernizing Alberta's Primary Health Care System, or MAPS as they call it, part of the Strategic Advisory Panel. and. I just, I think if you can figure out healthcare, you you know, you've got a future ahead of you. Yeah. Uh, especially we, we shone a light on it during the pandemic. We got to get our ducks in a row. We got to have the efficiencies because it costs so much. We have such a need for it. And everybody seems to have an opinion. The pandemic certainly highlighted the deficiencies. Yeah, so good point. most definitely we do need to do some, some work. Uh, not just provincially, but federally. I mean, as a whole, the whole system just doesn't seem to work the way it was intended and the way it used to, right? I mean, times have changed. I wonder if we just, we have more knowledge of what is wrong now and, and more transparency. And I think about 
how we've talked about the, the these boards being top heavy, which has, you know, people have taken shots at that mm-hmm. and looked at some restructuring. But what is that? And we talked to when we spoke with Dr. Reynolds about it. I said it's not just about throwing money. It's about the decisions being made. She says it's that delicate balance. But I think we can all say we'd like our dollars to be stretched as far and used as efficiently as possible. So I guess we'll see what what comes down. U.S. and Canadian troops have ended the search for debris that had fallen after unidentified objects were shot down over North America. Here to bring us some more details on what is new in the search for the alleged Chinese spy balloons is Richard Shmuka, who is a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute, specializing in strategic studies, comparative defense management approaches, and foreign policy. Good morning to you, Richard. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, what do we know? What's the latest? I mean, we, we've heard that some of these objects have been referred to as spy balloons, some as just unidentified objects. What do we know or I guess not know in this case? So certainly the first one that was shot down, I think it was February the 6th, uh, off of the coast of South Carolina, that's definitely a, a spy balloon. Now, what its purpose was and where was it supposed to be located or operating is still in, uh, there's still a bit of like uncertainty. What seems to be there were three that were shot down after that. Uh, Those ones are far less certain what they are. Uh, There seems like good evidence to suggest that some that just might be uh, weather balloons and hobbyist kind of balloons that were sort of detected. And then uh, in the sort of the the days after the original uh, shoot down of the large spy balloon, uh, they were potentially seen as targets. So they were taken down under some sort of abundance of caution, for lack of a better word. You know, so these balloons, uh, it seems to be the case, unattached to the very first incident. But what we've heard coming out after that first one on February 6th from analysts and those in the know, we have hundreds of things uh, above our sky that we don't know about as citizens, but NORAD and the military know about. Is that something that you make your business as well, knowing that things are buzzing above our skies that these citizens aren't, aren't aware of? So, uh, yes and no. I think certainly that what the, especially the first, uh, the first the actual spy balloon uh, sort of indicated that China has been undertaking surveillance using balloons. Uh, there's been reports coming out of the Pentagon that they believe that there's been around uh, 40 or so countries have kind of been affected by this program. Um, so that was an aspect that probably wasn't well understood in the public and now is obviously pretty, pretty much so. What I think happened after the initial one was that they started taking a look at sort of the radar data. And, and what you have to understand is that when, when you have radars or sort of these, you know, very complex sensing systems, they, they use filters in order to take uh, usable data, the raw data that they get out of the radars. And then they sort of look for patterns and patterns can be aircraft or they can be uh, low-level cruise missiles potentially, right? Uh, and in this case, they looked at data and they saw patterns of other balloons. And they saw there were a lot of other balloons. And what they realized was that uh, we don't know what they are. We've kind of filtered them out as kind of data. And so let's take a look at them. And in the kind of days after the initial panic, they said, well, we just we don't know what they are. So we might as well just shoot these down. So there's uh, there is a lot of things in our sky that we kind of are benign or they're not that maybe um, not that they're not essential to our sort of national security that we we look at and we don't really realize that and that's kind of opened it up but we got to be more i guess careful in the sense that to understand what is out there and and have a fairly good sense of what are the threats and what aren't 
Can we talk a little bit about that, Richard, then? Like, why a spy balloon? I mean, I would assume satellites are out there. Are, are Would the Chinese be using spy drones? Why the spy balloon? It seems so Hindenburg-esque. Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons why. So one is that satellites can do most of the job or a good portion of the job, but certainly at the altitudes that this spy balloon operated at, uh, which is oh, excuse me, above 60,000 feet, there's a kind of a, an area that there is actual utility. We, we op- well, I shouldn't say we, the United States operates a number of high-altitude uh, drones and aircraft like the U-2 that that do this kind of similar work for uh, signals intelligence and whatnot. And, and at that altitude, it makes sense. The problem for China is that they just don't have the bases nearby our bases. Uh, and I say ours as in like the sort of U.S. allied or, Can- or, or Canadian allied sort of uh, state that allows them to sort of conduct missions with aircraft. So balloons are kind of like the next best thing. But as we kind of see with balloons and what's the reports now is that this balloon may have been intended to fly near um, – Hawaii or Guam is that it's not really reliable. You, you don't have great control. And if you have a you know really strong windstorm, uh, you can lose control of this, you know, this capability. And that potentially may have happened in this case. And that's how why it flew over North America. All right, Richard, still on the topic, particularly when it comes to China, we are still talking about election interference and foreign election interference, particularly when it comes to the Chinese government on Canadian elections. Where are we there after the report from CSIS came out and uh, what do we expect to see moving ahead as far as the security of our elections? So I think it's 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 still a little bit uncertain. Uh, I know that the House of Commons Committee uh, is going to convene on this and greatly expand their sort of analysis of this. This has kind of been a slow burn of an issue because, you know, there was the CSIS report was sort of the, the not the contents, but certainly the, the overall sort of uh, trajectory of the report kind of was known for quite some time. Now we actually have some more details or some fairly concrete details. So that's kind of driving a lot of the sort of reporting and the sort of uh, focus on it. I, I think it's going to depend a lot on what's going to happen in the House of Commons, because that's going to be the main area of, uh, of, of sort of you know, discussion and, and more details being brought out. Uh, I, I know that the Trudeau government has sort of suggested they're actually looking who actually leaked this, uh, leaked this report, which you know, shows that they probably don't want its contents being more discussed. So, it's hard to say, but I think I think in the coming weeks, as the as the report is more discussed, that will probably be where the where the sort of the burn is coming from, or where the smoke or the the fire is going to emerge from. Thanks for the update, Richard. Really appreciate your time this morning. Not a problem. Thanks Thank for having you. Me. Thanks, Richard Shamuka, a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, specializing in strategic studies, comparative defense management approaches, and foreign policy. Today is National Human Trafficking Awareness Day, a crucial time to raise awareness. And joining us now is Julia Drydick, the Executive Director of the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking, a centre that encourages Canadians to educate themselves on trafficking in our country. Thank you for joining us this morning, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. Could you explain to us what National Human Trafficking Awareness Day is to our listeners? So despite great efforts from the Canadian government and from nonprofits around the country, Canadians are still shockingly unaware of the realities of human trafficking in Canada. Last year, we shed light on the issues of sex trafficking that are taking place within our borders. But this year, we really wanted to bring attention to the issue of labour trafficking, which is happening in Canada, largely in our agricultural communities. Okay, explain. So what specifically is labour trafficking? 
put very simply, labor trafficking is when you're exploiting someone else's labor for your own profit or gain. So unlike what you see in the movies, this often does not actually involve issues of illegal smuggling or forcible confinement. Each year, Canada welcomes more than 775,000 people from abroad with temporary work permits. And while many of these workers are treated well, we're seeing a growing number of migrant workers that are faced with false, false promises, intimidation, abuse, threats, and deceit. And again, we're really seeing this take place in the agricultural sector. Hmm. Julia, when it comes to sex trafficking, I think a lot of, uh, well, not just Canadians, but Calgarians are shocked that something like that happens in our nation. Uh, Do you get the same reaction when it comes to labor trafficking? Do you think that a lot of Canadians are unaware? Absolutely. We we recently conducted research uh, through a statistically significant poll of Canadians. And while Overwhelmingly, 98% of people in Alberta think it's important to support Canadian farming. And 98% also believe that Canadians deserve access to um, accessible and affordable nutritious food. Um, 85% um, simply have no idea that labor trafficking is taking place or how they would help uh, someone who might be being exploited in our farms. Can you explain a little bit about human trafficking? Because I think we all sort of have a a misconception, perhaps because of the movies or TV shows. Who is being trafficked and for what? So we're seeing hundreds of thousands of migrant workers come into Canada every year on temporary foreign work permits. These are the people that are harvesting our crops and making it so that we actually have food security in our country. They're often promised the Canadian dream when they come to Canada. Um, They're coming here also because they're hardworking um, and they're coming on short-term work permits to send money back home and build a better life for themselves. But increasingly, they're finding that they're not receiving the bill of goods that they were sold prior to entering in Canada. When they arrive, often they're in incredibly cramped and substandard housing conditions. Um, Many migrant workers have no idea what their rights are in Canada and they can face threats, abuse, Sometimes their ID is taken away from them. Um, they're not uh, uh, permitted to access important services like health care, even though they're entitled to them. And again, um, the signs of human trafficking are far more nuanced. Um, it can look far more like people threatening deportation, threatening the, fam- the safety of their family back home, um, or even uh, them dealing with discrimination or threats of abuse here in Canada. So I'm wondering, you know, because we're talking about it and it seems like we've been talking about it a little bit more, uh, trafficking, you know, under the whole umbrella, labor and and sexual trafficking, has it become more prevalent or are we become more aware? And that's why we're talking about it more in, in 2023. The data we have on the prevalence of human trafficking in Canada is only the tip of the iceberg. So in our first three years of operating the Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline, Um, Out of all human trafficking cases that we identified, only 6% were labor trafficking. But I think a big part of that is because we don't know to look for Mm. the signs. So as we talk more about this, I think people will start realizing and and picking up on some of the nuanced indicators of coercion, intimidation, abuse, and trafficking in our communities. Okay, and most importantly, obviously, today, February 22nd, being National Human Trafficking Awareness Day, we can help raise awareness. What do we need to do as Canadians, as Calgarians? What are we looking for and how can we help? So both the sex and labour trafficking, you're looking for more nuanced signs, signs of fear, intimidation, being watched, maybe signs of physical abuse like bruises, scrapes and cuts. 
Often people who are experiencing labor trafficking have their ID confiscated from them, um, and they might also have their movements controlled. So the first thing Canadians can do is check out our website at www.canadiancentertoendhumantrafficking.ca to learn more about the issue. Um, but if you suspect something is off, either with yourself or someone you know, um, chances are something's not right. So please call the Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline at one 833 900-1010. We're completely confidential. We can connect you to resources in your community, and we're here to help. Some great resources, and uh, thanks for your time, Julia. We appreciate it this morning. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Julia Drydick, Executive Director of the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking.